views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Good morning. It is 11 a.m. Eastern Time. My name is Angel Fall, and you're listening to Victims to Victorious. We are a podcast hosted by the Black Talk Radio Network. I want to thank founder of the Black Talk Radio Network and my engineer, Scotty Reed, uh, for making this happen today. <laughs> Each and every week, we take a look at shootings in America, particularly black-on-black homicides, and the public health solutions that should be used to reduce the frequency of these events. Because we broadcast very often from different places, <coughs> excuse me, we are broadcasting this morning from Cleveland, Ohio, and the title of today's show is Public Health Solutions Review and Recommendations Review recommendations and resolutions. And I chose resolutions because it's still January. Um, I took a, a small break in January and had not reported on the beginning of the year shootings. So here in Cleveland, Ohio, um, where I'm broadcasting this morning, there were over a dozen people shot at the end of 2019 and the beginning of January 1st. And of course, that's an overlap time. And um, I'm going to read a little bit from the article. As we do, we like to see the, the most current information when we broadcast. This article is by Randy Buffington and Kendall Forrest, and it appears at cleveland19.com, which is a television station with a huge web support. So what the article does, it begins to list the number of victims According to police, the first, 20, the first victim was a 27-year-old male who walked into Marymount Hospital with a gunshot wound. Um, it doesn't say if he died or not, but one of the uh, themes to remember is gunshot wound victims, <coughs> even if they survive, can have what the epidemiologists call um, high morbidity. And what that means is they're sick. They're paralyzed, they lose function of an eye, an organ, a hand, etc. The second shooting reported was at 6 p.m. The shooting sent a 22-year-old male to Fairview Hospital. A 69-year-old male was transported to Metro Hospital after getting shot in the back. A shooting took place near the 5600 block of Woodland Avenue that left a 30-year-old male in critical condition. One hour later, at 11 p.m., a 22-year-old man with a gunshot wound to the leg was seen, uh, was reported. His condition was unknown at the time, and they believe the shooting took place at the 4,000 block of East 146th Street in Cleveland, which actually isn't very far from here where we're broadcasting. Uh, the Cleveland police say a man was popping off rounds to celebrate New Year's when he fatally shot his girlfriend. The 30-year-old woman was shot on the 5900 block of Merrill Avenue. We're going to talk about her uh, because she's actually the first recorded victim in 2020 in Cleveland, Ohio. Within the same hour, a 34-year-old suffered a gunshot wound to the face near the 1000 block of North Boulevard. And if you are listening in the Cleveland area, you should contact uh, your local representative to say that you want gun violence reduced, you want a program that attacks it from the public health model. We're going to take a look at those six six basic ways 
gun violence can be reduced. And some of them are quite applicable, easily applicable, don't cost money, etc. cetera. Uh, the AIDS victim was around 1 a.m. And please note they're counting from December 31st through the 1st because this is a cultural phenomenon, a tragedy that people get used to in Cleveland, Ohio, where popping off rounds on New Year's usually be, it, it begins for a lot of people exactly at midnight, but you can see that people start shooting and popping off rounds before midnight. So the, um, the way it's counted in this article, uh, based on the way the police look at it, is from December 31st to January 1st. A 16-year-old female was transported to Metro Hospital by her parents with a gunshot wound to the foot. The shooting took place near Kinsman Avenue. Around 3 a.m. January 1st, a 27-year-old male arrived with a gunshot wound to the foot. Sometimes the popping off rounds are shooting in the ground. Um, using some disclosure here, and that's actually how my father showed me how to pop off the rounds um, on New Year's by shooting in the ground. And of course, um, that can also be dangerous because there are utilities in the ground, there are pipes in the ground, and maybe some of our victims here even um, shot themselves in the foot. So those are some of the victims uh, that were that were injured because people have a tradition of shooting guns off on New Year's to celebrate the New Year's. So many people don't think about the um, the consequences. So again, I do know that the 31-year-old was in fact. Uh, she did die from her from her gunshot wound. So we will return to her in a moment. But let's take a look at some of the suggestions for reducing gun violence in America. And this article comes from American Progress. So there are six basic ways they are suggesting. Ban assault weapons in high-capacity ammunition magazines. Enable the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to research gun violence. And, of course, uh, gun violence is a public health issue. And the hands have been tied by the government. Um, they've been tied by the government because of what's called the Dickey Amendment. And we'll get back to that. Require background checks for all gun sales. That's number three. Support local violence prevention programs and intervention programs, disarm all domestic abusers, and make extreme extreme risk protection order, orders available in every state. And those of you who have been following me since I started this show in July know that we've actually discussed um, we've actually discussed all those topics. And I'm gonna make a reference to those prior podcasts so you can sign on, listen and leave a comment on the website because today part of today's show is about review and recommendations. The full title of today's show is Public Health Solutions Review, Recommendations, and Resolutions. So let's talk about the first victim of the year in 2020. Uh, her name was Erica Miranda, and uh, I'm reading from the ABC News link on the web. Okay. All right, then. So the, um, okay, the article is slow loading for some reason. So what I do know about Erica Miranda is that her boyfriend was shooting off rounds or popping off rounds, and she became a victim at, uh, let's see if the article is up. I know that she became a victim of his shooting. I want to give a few more details from the article. I certainly read it, but I want to um, provide the listener with the link, which is the abcnews.com slash us slash Cleveland man. A 38-year-old man was arrested for ringing in the New Year's by firing bullets that killed his girlfriend, police say. Sheldon Stevens Jr. was taken into custody in Cleveland early Wednesday morning around 12.15 a.m. Um, 
when shots were fired on the second floor of a home that struck his 31-year-old girlfriend. When the ambulance went inside the Merrill Avenue house, Stephen was allegedly laying in the hallway on top of the victim who had blood on her face, according to Cleveland Police Department records. Stephen was arrested at the scene, police said. The city's medical examiner confirmed to ABC News Thursday that Erica Miranda was the victim of the shooting. Stevens was charged with reckless homicide and police believe he may have been under the influence of alcohol, according to police records. Melissa said was an article, certainly New Year's is a day where people drink, the police have extra checkpoints, etc. So alcohol use and gun ownership and discharging a gun are um, just not a bad combination. I mean, they are a bad combination, and I'm sure we're all cognizant of that, but when a tragedy like this happens, we all wonder how it can be prevented. When officers reported to the scene, they learned that Stephen was popping off rounds, and that's the colloquium, colloquial language here in the Midwest, to celebrate the new year, and at some point, Miranda was shot, police said. Investigators with the city's homicide unit are leading the investigation. Miranda's death was one of 11 shootings that occurred in the city within a nine-hour span between New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And that was the article that I read earlier from Channel 19. Thirteen people in total, including Miranda, were shot in the incident, police confirmed to ABC News. Miranda's death is the first homicide of the year for the city, according to police. The other shootings are still under investigation. And I certainly read um, from those articles. So now what we're doing is we're taking a look. We're unpacking the six ways that um, that public health can model can be used to reduce gun violence. And a lot of people still who are listening might believe that this is a random event. Well, random is a um, random is actually a scientific term that means I'm going to define it this way: equal probability of none or all. But violence in the African American community, especially as the program focuses on gun violence, is actually a predictable event. So the statistics that have been gathered over the decades, we know that there are going to be African-American men overrepresented in the homicide rate in the way we know that white men are overrepresented in the um, suicide rate. So if you are just listening to the show for the first time, a very alarming statistic is that at white men are more likely to use a gun on themselves and African-American men are most likely to use a gun on a friend, acquaintance, or relative. And so I'm just going to let that sink in. Another um, terribly unusual statistic uh, for the listeners is most of these homicides are not ever closed. So they remain uninvestigated. And there are certain people in the public health community who also believe that if the closure rate were to go up, the um, actual homicide rate would go down. But that is another topic for another show. So if you are following me on the Internet, you can go to AmericanProgress.org slash issues slash guns. And they're listing six ways that public health models could be used to reduce the morbidity and the mortality, meaning the people who get shot in general, the people who die when they get shot is mortality, the people who are critically wounded permanently disabled, that is the morbidity. So here are the six again, ban assault weapons and high capacity ammunition magazines, enable the centers for disease control and prevention to research gun violence as a public health issue, require background checks for all gun sales, support local violence prevention and intervention programs, disarm all domestic abusers and make extreme risk protection orders available in every state. And one of the things that we have um, examined is that there are federal laws 
and then there can be jurisdictional laws, and there can be gaps in the way the law is applied in these jurisdictions. In a county, in a city, for instance, in Cleveland, Ohio, and in certain suburbs, it is totally illegal to discharge any type of weapon. But the police have a certain amount of tolerance for it because it's been a tradition for decades. And uh, you can hear, if you live in the eastern suburbs and people are discharging weapons, the police might knock on the door and ask them not to on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Or they may drive through the city um, and say so on a megaphone. They don't stop and arrest these people for discharging the weapons on New Year's unless a tragedy occurs. And that has been somewhat of a gentleman's agreement, if you will. And while I am, when I list and explain the preventions, I will point you to some of the, um, some of the shows I did to, that addressed some of these things previously. So let's take a look at support local prevention, no, sorry, let's take a look first at domestic disarm all domestic abusers and make extreme risk protection orders available in every state. So we're going to read, we are reading the article from AmericanProgress.org and I'm looking at disarm all domestic abusers as a public health intervention. Guns in the hands of domestic abusers pose a significant risk to women, according to the article. Um, from 2004 to 2015, 6,313 women were murdered by an intimate partner using a gun. The presence of a gun in a household that has experienced domestic violence increases the risk that a woman will be murdered by 500%. I am repeating that. It increases the risk of a woman being murdered by 500%. Abusers also frequently use guns as tools of intimidation even without pulling the trigger. A recent study found that nearly 4.5 million women in the United States have been threatened with a gun by an abuser. And I am using disclosure here. I was in a, in a new relationship that went sour fast, and uh, the man I was dating, he did pull a gun on me. Uh, it was a 38, and he dropped the bullet, one of the bullets when he was loading it by hand, which I managed to pick up. And when I first filed the police report, the police were skeptical, but then I pulled out the 38, and then they started writing things down. So one of the problems is women still are suffering with credibility issues when they lobby these charges against their abusers. I also like the way the article says abusers, and uh, the article will address this a little bit more. One of the gaps in the law, and I certainly addressed this on a show that aired 11... 2019 called Battered Women and Bullets When Conjugal Violence Kills is that some of the states are still only enforcing the abuse laws for legally married people instead of dating people, instead of uh, conjugal partners, even same-sex partners. A lot of them are not enforcing this, this on them because it's a very, very strict interpretation of the law and their laws have not changed to reflect that most people that a huge group of people live together today. Some statistics say more people are living together than getting married. So returning back to the article in American Progress, when federal law prohibits some domestic abusers from buying and possessing guns, there are significant gaps in the law that leave victims of abuse vulnerable to lethal violence. And I, I made a commentary there. The following abusers, returning to the article, remain free to buy and possess guns under federal law. So what I'm listing now are the gaps in the law that this article found on American Progress's website. Individuals convicted of domestic violence abuse are subject to a restraining order for abusing a dating partner as opposed to a current spouse, former spouse, co-parent of a child in common, or current or former live-in intimate partner. So there, uh, the authors here are describing best they can all the permutations of intimate partners or conjugal partners, as I say, rather than just leaving it as saying, well, he's not your real husband, you really didn't get married, so I can't do anything. Because these women are dying with or without the legal paperwork. Individuals convicted of a misdemeanor stalking against an in intimate partner. Stalking is a frequent element of domestic abuse. 
according to data from the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey. Nearly 62% of female stalking victims were stalked by a current or former intimate partner, while 26% were stalked by an acquaintance and 15% by a stranger. Individuals subject to a temporary restraining order. The period immediately following the issuance of a temporary restraining order is often one of the most dangerous times for women in abusive relationships. So they made a, a reference in the article to the Sexual Violence Survey, the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey. Notice the word intimate partner. Um, I say conjugal. And if you want to find out a little bit more, um, a lot of epidemiologists published in the American Journal of Public Health, and there's an article by J.C. Campbell and others called Risk Factors for Femicide in Abusive Relationships Results from a Multi-Site Case Control. And one of the things at the top of the show, <coughs> when we listed the six, um, six interventions that could help reduce morbidity and mortality of gunshot wounds in America, we mentioned that the Centers for Disease Control is very much crippled by something called the Dickey Amendment. But the people who did the research here for risk factors for femicide and abusive relationships, notice the title it doesn't include guns, and they're able to, research is able to get through, but doesn't accept, does not address directly the Dickey Amendment prohibitions. So that is one of the article. Uh, one of the that is one of the um, tenets or preventions for disarm, disarming all domestic abusers. The show that I did that you would find most relevant aired on November fourth, twenty nineteen, and it's called "Battered Women and Bullets: When Conjugal Violence Kills." And you can turn on, you know, you can sign on to Black Talk Radio Network and take a look and listen and leave a comment. One of the things that I'm interested in is to hear from women, I use self-disclosure, hear from women who've been victimized or hear from family members that have um, unfortunately been victimized in this way. So you can find that article in... Um, AmericanProgress.org. Now, just before we took a look at uh, that particular intervention, we were discussing, <coughs> excuse me, we were discussing some of the victims of, of the shootings in Cleveland, Ohio, the tradition, and why I want to speak to the culture of shooting and not, not thinking anything of it. I also want to speak to the culture of domestic violence because if you have grown up in a home where if you have grown up in a home where you have seen this, you might have you might have normalized this. And so we know that this is not we know that this is not normal, but the shame, you know, the shame of reporting and the way that the police the way that the police don't take you seriously. Excuse me. I know from my own experience that people, law enforcement, has to be better trained in understanding that the woman might not really have a um, might not really have an ulterior motive, but instead she is actually reporting a true event. So it should be it should be something that you, as a woman or a man, want for your want for your spouse you want it for your <coughs> excuse me you want the ability to report and be believed by your daughter your granddaughter etc so I just that's just me making a commentary and one of the things that does happen to some women is they once they get um, once they start to report they get intimidated by the domestic violence they get intimidated by the domestic violence abuser. So that is um, something to think about. That's something to to address. Sometimes going to the police station with another person, um, that can also help you, another family member. And one of the things that the domestic violence um, people, the people who study domestic violence often notice is 
if you live in a jurisdiction where the man gets uh, arrested on your report, very often, unfortunately, it is the woman who bails the man out. So um, we've got about four minutes to go before the station ID, and the title of today's show is Public Health Solutions Review and Recommendation Review Recommendations and Resolutions, and you're listening to Victims to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. So let's let's continue to discuss in just a few minutes uh, the the next the next article. I'm sorry, the next prevention listed by American Progress. So the next one we're going to address that's tied to the last one is to make extreme risk protection orders available in every state. Every state does not enforce the law of the federal government in the same way, and states have different court systems, states have different jurisdictions. I often mention Connecticut. Connecticut is a state with no legal county government, and Louisiana has parish government instead of county government. The article American Progress says, what is an extreme risk protection order? An extreme risk protection order is a civil remedy that allows family members or law enforcement to petition a court to temporarily remove firearms from a person who poses an imminent risk of harm to themselves or others. For the duration of the protection order, the individual is also prohibited from buying new guns. ERPO is the acronym for this. These laws include robust due process protections, including notice to the respondent and an opportunity to be heard and present evidence, as well as the requirement of a judicial finding of risk prior to the issuance of an order. ERPO laws are designed to provide a legal tool to intervene when there are warning signs that the individual is experiencing a temporary crisis, poses a risk of harm to self or others, and possesses a gun. Individuals contemplating being suicide, remember, white men are most likely to use a gun for suicide, often exhibit warning signs, providing an opportunity to intervene and ensure that they do not have access to lethal means, such as firearms. Remember that gunshot wounds, uh, gunshot wounds to the head <coughs> are, and that's the number one choice of a suicide victim who's totally bent on killing his or herself, but mostly here it's white men. Gunshot wounds to the head tend to be 95% fatal. And of course, if they're not fatal, there is a very high risk that the person will not be the same. They might be alive, but severely damaged cognitively. In states that have not enacted this legislation, now just think about that. Are you in a state that hasn't enacted the ERPO law? There are a few options available for concerned family members and local law enforcement to prevent individuals demonstrating such signs from having access to a gun. States that have enacted the ERPO laws have, have seen positive results. Connecticut, for instance, analysis of Connecticut's ERPO style law called risk warrants found that it was highly effective at identifying individuals who were at the highest risk for suicide and had access to guns. Researchers found that individuals subject to risk warrants were 40 times more likely, that's 40 times more likely, to die by suicide, and that for every 10 to 20 orders issued, one life is saved. In 99% of cases where a risk warrant was issued, was issued, police officers found at least one gun and removed, a, removed an average of seven guns per individual. So if you want to know more about extreme risk protection orders, uh, you can go to HTTP, well, we all know it's a website, I won't read that, or you should, efsgv.org. Anything that I, any reference that I give out that you're not able to get or miss, just send me a direct message on Twitter. That's On Air Angel. Send me a direct message on Twitter. So just before the station ID, we've taken a look at the ERPO laws that are not enacted in most states. That's extreme risk protection orders. And the AmericanProgress.org website is urging people to ask that these laws 
be enacted in their state. So um, it's time for our station ID. You're listening to Victims to Victorious. The title of today's show is Public Health Solutions, Review, Recommendations, and Resolutions. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Okay, thanks for listening to Victims to Victorious. I want to thank um, my sound engineer, Scott, Scotty Reed, and founder of the Black Talk Radio Network. If you haven't heard some of our shows before, please visit Black Talk Radio Network. There is a button on the right. You click on uh, categories, and you can see all the shows that are being broadcast. Um, my show is called Victims to Victorious, and I am Angel Fall. So six ways, that's what we're discussing, six basic ways. There are a multiplicity of ways and to reduce gun violence, and there isn't just one discipline that offers a solution. Public health models tend to reach out to sociologists, medical doctors, law enforcement, um, community associations, et cetera, to reduce this because this is a multi-pronged way of reducing gun violence by cooperating with others so that we can get really good numbers and reduce the number, especially of African-American men who kill each other and of white men who use guns for suicide. The six steps urged by the American Progress article are ban assault weapons, and high-capacity ammunition magazines, enable the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to research gun violence as a public health issue, require background checks for all gun sales, support local violence prevention and intervention programs, and disarm all domestic abusers, make extreme risk protection orders available in every state. So, so far we've actually discussed <clears throat> we've discussed two of them. Disarm all domestic abusers, make extreme risk protection orders available in every state. So what I would like to do is um, just connect you to a couple of the shows that expand that topic. We looked at battered women and bullets when conjugal violence kills, which was one of the shows of mine that aired last uh, last um, last November. And we're going to take a look. Well, actually, Innocent Faces, Children Shot in Safe Places. We also took a look at children who end up being shot in domestic violence situations. So you'll see some of that. And one of the shows I had that links to um, the six, the six uh, recommendations by American Progress is require background checks for all gun sales. That is the name of the intervention as written in the article, but my show, which aired uh, in September of 2019, is called Background Checks, Who Wants Them, Who Needs Them. So we're going to unpack this. If you are following us on the web, navigate to the Center for American Progress. So here's the article require background checks for all gun sales. They actually posted this article two years ago, um, but it is part of the um, ongoing advocacy 
one of the reasons, before I even get into the article, one of the reasons why we want background checks for everyone is to prohibit some of the people we've just spoken about, a domestic abuser, some of the people who are mentally unstable, some of the people who have committed violence, violent acts in the past, because past acts of violence are, predict, are predictors of future acts of violence. All right? Now, somebody who, who purchases a gun in a domestic violence situation might just be using the gun for intimidation. Not necessarily is he purchasing it to kill the female victim, but just to get her in line, so to speak, just to scare her, just to keep her at home, just to keep her from filing charges against him for beating her up. These are ways that abusers use weapons to intimidate. So if somebody, if you're following this thread of thought, if someone has a previous violence conviction or the gap in the uh, protection order paperwork and the filing gate paperwork is closed, this type of person would not be able to then get the weapon to intimidate his conjugal partner who could eventually, as we heard earlier, he would be then 500 times as likely to use the weapon on her. So now I'm reading from um, this article written by Joe Rady on American Progress. Under current federal law, some individuals are prohibited from buying and possessing guns for such reasons as prior felony convictions, history of domestic abuse, or involuntary commitment for mental health treatment. Licensed gun dealers are required to conduct a background check for every gun sale in order to ensure that they are not selling guns to prohibited purchasers. However, a substantial gap in the law allows unlicensed sellers such as private individuals who sell guns online Think of this now. Guns are sold online at gun shows or anywhere else to sell guns without first conducting a background check. Stepping away from the article, in other words, what about your neighbor who sells the gun to his brother-in-law and he knows that his brother-in-law has a felony conviction and he knows that his brother can't get through the background check. So American Progress and others are arguing that they should not be exempted just because it's a private sale. Washington, D.C., although not technically a state, is um, the District of Columbia has a law that requires individual sales sellers to go to pay for a background check. This means, returning to the article, that prohibited purchasers can easily evade the law by buying guns through private transactions. And, of course, that was my commentary. A 2017 study found that 22% of gun owners who obtained their most recent gun within the past two years did so using a transaction that did not include a background check. The same study also found that 50% of gun owners who acquired their most recent gun through a private sale rather than from a licensed gun dealer within the past two years did so in a transaction that did not include a background check. So here, you know, you can hear the implication of the writer it was their intention not to have to go through it. Now, not everyone who, who doesn't want to go through the background check is a criminal. I don't want people to leave a comment that I'm saying that. I'm simply saying there are a whole group of people who find the federal government law intrusive or they don't want, they want little record as possible for privacy's sake. So there are those people, but the American Progress and others are arguing this for a couple of reasons. So I'm return to the article. When Connecticut implemented a law requiring individuals to obtain and undergo a background check before buying a handgun, gun-related homicides in the state fell 40%. When Missouri repeated a similar law, its gun homicides rose, remember repealed, a, uh, which means pulled back, removed from the books. When Missouri repealed this law, its gun homicides rose 25%. Now, I'm constantly introducing the listener to, listeners to some of the public health models and some of the public health language. There is a rule in when you do research that if something happens 95% of the time, if you recall your statistics class, 
you're talking about the bell curve. So if something happens 95% of the time, you can call it all. If something happens 5% or less, you can call it none. But it didn't increase. There isn't statistical insignificance in either one of these numbers. In Connecticut, gun-related homicides fell 40%. And that's nearly half. And in Missouri, when the law was removed, it went up 25%. So that means there are 25 more deaths per 100. A 2009 study found that intrastate gun trafficking was 48% lower in states that required background checks for, for private handgun sales. So far, 19 states and the District of Columbia have acted to require background checks for all handgun sales. And I mentioned that in my commentary that D.C. actually was doing it. And we talked about that um, on a show that I'd like you to listen and leave a comment on that was called background checks who wants them who needs them and that was broadcast in september of 2019 on the black talk radio network if you want more information there's several articles here and when you're doing your own research if you haven't graduated from college if you're still in undergraduate school if you are not computer literate by managing to listen obviously the librarian can help you um, there are lines, you can even call sometimes the local library and speak to the reference librarian. But if you have a grassroots movement or you're personally concerned, I want you to, to educate yourself by looking at some of the articles. And I mentioned the American Journal of Public Health uh, because they publish a lot of epidemiology work, a public health work. And there is an article there on association between Connecticut's permit to purchase handgun law and homicide. So that, that's a, that's a very powerful statistic the way that it was reduced just simply with background checks. And, of course, that gets rid of um, some of the straw buying, some of the illegal dealing, et cetera. And a website that I often use is Gifford's Law Center to prevent gun violence. So we have, um, we have a little less than, we have a little, well, we have about 20 minutes to go. If you just tuned in, you are listening to me, Angel Fall. You can follow me on Twitter, On Air Angel. That's On Air Angel. And I urge you to listen to other programs here on the Black Talk Radio Network. You visit the blacktalkradionetwork.com. Um, and then when you see the button on the right that says Categories, I want you to click on it and you can listen to other shows that promote the concerns of people and especially of African Americans. The title of today's show is Public Health Solutions Review, Recommendations, and Resolutions. And of course, I chose resolutions because it's January and uh, people often make New Year's resolutions. And what I'm asking is that the society make some New Year's resolutions. So we're reviewing uh, the American Progress article that wants to have stakeholders, law enforcement, researchers, etc., implement these six basic ways of reducing gun violence in this country. So we, we looked at make extreme risk protection orders available in every state, disarm all domestic abusers, require background checks for all gun sales, and now I'm going to move over to support local violence prevention and intervention programs. I also want to identify or at least explain a little bit when public health people are talking about interventions, what does that mean? If a disease is an epidemic, and I have begun this show um, based on the article on LinkedIn that I saw written by Lisa Rose Rodriguez, an epidemiologist, about reducing gun violence, for instance, by increasing interpersonal conflict skills between African Americans. So in public health, when you reduce something, you have an intervention. And then intervention means that the number of people who would normally get the disease without the intervention has been changed permanently. We're looking for permanent change. I have explained to the listeners one of the best ways to, to connect yourself to that thought is to look at vaccines, to look at seatbelts and cars, to look at having babies uh, sleep, the position of a baby to sleep, um, to look at um, what else? Programs that, uh, like, for instance, drunk driving programs, 
so that someone can call a designated driver. Those are interventions. Now, in order to have an intervention that continues to work, you, it has to be, it has to produce permanent results. So I think there's probably not one listener out there who knows someone who has contacted measles, for instance. When I was a child, there was no chickenpox vaccination. Um, I have been teaching recently where a couple of kids slipped through the cracks, but chickenpox, if you are my age or older, you may have gotten them, but you know someone who has. But I doubt if your children are under 30, they know anyone who has had chickenpox. So we're taking a look um, at the number six article, the um, six ways that gun violence can be prevented that appears on the AmericanProgress.org website. And this one goes out to all my grassroots listeners, um, my public elected public officials who listen, so that you can develop a program that does not necessarily cost a lot of money. And keep in mind that um, the Department of Justice funding that came out of the Tamir Rice incidents, for instance, here in Cleveland, uh, his mother is beginning to use it for some programs, but many places that have Department of Justice money have only used it to hire more law enforcement. So your grassroots organization can be funded in places like the National Institute of Health, the Centers for Disease Control. You may have a local foundation. I know here there's the Cleveland Foundation. Uh, we mentioned the state of Connecticut. I think it's called the Hartford Foundation that provides funding for um, various programs in the community. So support local violence prevention and intervention. We've often talked about that on uh, Victims to Victorious. And... We talk about Cure Violence, for instance. There are programs in Chicago and New York. So let's go ahead and look at this, uh, this way of reducing gun violence. Although mass shooting draws the most attention, these in incidents account for only a small fraction, a small fraction of the homicides in the United States, of gun violence that occurs each year in the United States. Far more common are incidents of interpersonal violence. And again, I mentioned that article on LinkedIn. Uh, if, if you put Lisa Rose Rodriguez in your group, you can see the article. But also, um, yeah, you can see the article. She can send it to you. And she discusses interpersonal violence. So interpersonal violence that becomes fatal due to the easy availability, availability of guns. And I'm going to define that. Most African-American men who are shot are shot by a friend, acquaintance, or relative. The burden of this violence often falls disproportionately on urban communities and communities of color. Strengthening the nation's gun law, gun laws is only one part of the solution. In order to reduce gun violence, it is also necessary to invest in evidence-based that's evidence-based violence reduction strategies that engage all community stakeholders. So again, when it says evidence-based, basically the shorthand is that you are able to prove that your intervention works. That's all there is to it. Think also, if you um, are still having trouble understanding how this could be applied to violence, remember, we are just, we on this show, we have decided that violence is an epidemic. So think of some of the things I just mentioned. Seat belts kept people, keep people from injuries in the car. Uh, I can remember my grandfather having a car with a metal dashboard. There are no more metal dashboards. They're covered in a very hard plastic. Um, what else can I remember that's a, a good intervention? Um, there's a lot of interventions for elderly people around falling, like keeping lights in the hallways. Even that, that, that show, that those, those hokey commercials, I mean, help I fall when I can't get up, uh, where you have a panic button on. Before that technolo technology was available, we've all heard stories where an elderly person had a fall, could not get to the phone, and was lying down for days with broken bones or, or injured organs. So returning to the article, um, so gun violence occurs, that occurs each year in the United States. Far more common are incidents of interpersonal violence. That's where we were. Reviewing the article after my comment. St 
Strengthening the nation's gun laws is only one part of the solution. In order to reduce gun violence, it is necessary to invest in evidence-based violence reduction strategies. So there is a, a website called Cure Violence, and we did a show on that. They had uh, they have pro- programs in Chicago and New York and Baltimore, for instance. Here's one of the programs. It's called Project Longevity. From 2001 to 2016, in three Connecticut cities in which this group violence intervention program operates, gun homicides fell by more than 50%. So that's a very, very high statistic that we can all relate to. If something is reduced by 50%, that is a very high standard. Richmond, California, a comprehensive strategy to address gun violence in Richmond by using elements of all three types of intervention programs resulted in a 71% reduction in gun violence leading to injury or death in 2007 to 2016. So that would mean, if you just make this a basic statistic, it means that 71 out of 100, that's 71%. So they can prove that three-fourths of the gun homicides that they would normally see have been reduced, okay? So that was number... That was one of the six. If you're following me online and want to know more about this type of violence strategy reduction, go to cureviolence.org, that's cvg.org, cvg.org, so that you can see how to reduce gun violence. So one of the ways that they do it and is that they have some people who are trained who are called violence interrupters. And the violence interrupters actually are able to identify a certain people who would be at risk for homicide, okay, and they're able to determine if someone has been murdered that the people who've done the murdering might be likely to seek revenge. And so they are able to speak to these people directly. They are not law enforcement officers. Many of the cure violence violence interrupters actually are former gangbangers in Chicago and New York, for instance. So um, I'm going to unpack that a little, mo- a little more. The cure violence program approaches violence in an entirely new way, according to um, the NGO advisor. NGO means non-government organizations. Um, it, it uh, approaches violence as a contagious disease, and that is one of our themes here on uh, V2V. Cure violence approaches violence in an entirely new way as a contagious disease that can be stopped by using the same health strategy to fight epidemics. The cure violence model trains and deploys outreach workers and violence interrupters to mitigate conflict on the street before it turns violent. So this is why the article uh, on LinkedIn written by uh, Lisa Rose Rodriguez about um, curing violence using interpersonal conflict resolution is so important to understand. And I can send it to you directly, or you can see it actually on my um, Twitter feed, because we know that these conflicts between friends, acquaintances, and relatives escalate into someone being shot over and over and over again. That information is undisputed. So a little bit of background about ceasefire, and this is because I know there are people listening who want to change violence in their community. Originally developed under the name ceasefire in 2000, um, Gary Slutkin, and you can follow him on Twitter too, S-L-U-T-K-I-N, he's working, uh, I believe he's still in Chicago, um, Slutkin launched the model in West Garfield, the most violent community in Chicago at the time. Ceasefire, which was what it was called then, produced a 67% reduction in shootings in its first year. year. However, a three-year review by the U.S. Department of Justice in 2009 found that it reduced shootings from 16% to 34%, and, but it eliminated retaliatory murders resulting from increased use of public education slogans such as don't shoot, I want to grow up, 
and conflict mediation and community mobilization. Ceasefire received additional funding from the state of Illinois in 2004 to immediately expand from 5 to 15 communities from 20 to 80 outreachers, outreach workers. That year, homicides declined in Chicago by 25% to a total of 448, a rate of 15.5 homicides per 100,000 residents. So the denominator is 100,000 for uh, their actual statistical work. Since 2005, the organization is providing hospital-based violence prevention response to violently injured patients from the south side of Chicago at the Advocate Christ Medical Center. The success of the Advocate Christ Medical Program in 2001 led to the creation of a second hospital-based violence prevention program at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, a level one trauma center that treats approximately 1,000 trauma patients annually. So one of the things about about everyone being a stakeholder is that gunshot wound victims take up a tremendous amount of resources in the emergency room. And then you're talking about if somebody, you're looking at the morbidity too, if someone leaves there paralyzed, now you have to have someone who has to go on disability. Now you have someone who um, may remain may remain permanently traumatized who needs mental health services. And all of these are um, measurable results of reducing gun violence in your neighborhood. And notice that many of it is much of Cure Violence's efforts are focused on eliminating conflict, eliminating conflict. And the other comment I want to have about uh, the outreach workers is that there's a lot of data that shows when the outreach workers match the demographic of the people they are serving or they um, match the actual demographic or they are actually uh, members of the neighborhood, that the difference in the people who cooperate and comply with them is, is remarkable. They're more likely. So, and what's also interesting too here is that it matches, in this case, you're looking at more male outreach workers because more males use guns to resolve interpersonal conflicts. So I did mention um, the article that inspired this show because it does take a look at interpersonal violence. Um, You can type in reducing gun violence, morbidity and mortality, that's a lot in African-American males by applying interpersonal communication skills. And that was first published on LinkedIn by um, the epidemiologist Lisa Rose Rodriguez. And she can come to your grassroots organization and um, provide you with some training. You can also contact Cure Violence. If you want her to come to your grassroots organization, um, her email is lrrodriguez with a Z, underscore mph at yahoo.com, L-R-R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, underscore mph at yahoo.com. And I'm just going to read a little bit from that article. Um, Harm reduction programs identify people at risk for harm, and then those at risk are taught to negate their own risk to improve health care outcomes. And those who self-refer will get counseling surrounded, surrounding using violence to solve interpersonal conflicts in her model. It's different from the cure violence model where they are, they are actually doing the outreach by identifying gangbangers and other people at risk. So we have about two minutes to go here on Black Talk, the Black Talk Radio Network. Hey, you hey, have been listening. Angel, I'm sorry. Yes. Before before we go, if we could do a quick rewind. So did I hear you correctly that a media campaign to uh, promote um, anti-gun violence messages was successful? Yes, that would be part of the Cure Violence Project. They, they rented billboards to encourage people um, not to shoot and to contact um, – to contact someone in the program to talk to them about 
how they're feeling. This is partic- was particularly useful um, in the retaliatory shootings because we know, like that little girl whose homicide isn't is not has not been solved here in Cleveland when they shot up her house. Um, we know that there are very often innocent bystanders who get caught in the retaliatory shooting where they spray a house or they spray right. an address with bullets or um, a, uh, what did I say, address, cor- street corner, car. Uh, We've uh, all seen that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that billboards, that's media, but um, I'm, I'm wondering if they ever considered doing like any kind of audio ads and then, you know, PSAs and even getting them placed, uh, whether they're video PSAs that can be placed on local, uh, you know, TV stations, local channels, and um, also as well as radio. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is because, you know, I got a connection in Chicago who works against gun violence as well by the name oh. of, of, of Brother Kwabana Rasuli, uh, who's out of Gary, but does a lot of work in in Chicago because that's all in the same area. And he frequently points out the gun violence, pro-gun violence messages in the music uh, that targets African-American communities uh, in that area. And, and, you know, I believe, as he believes, that we can't, quantify, you know, uh, what percentage of violence is caused by listening to these violent messages day in and day out that tell you to solve disputes with guns and what have you. We can't, you know, uh, uh, put put a percentage of those people who listen to that type of music, um, but I do believe that it plays a role. Uh, I do believe media is the most powerful entity on the face of the planet. That's why programs like you're doing it is very important for, you know, for people to be able to access because when you look at not just the rap music that targets the African-American community, but overall American entertainment culture is, is, is soaked in, in violence. It is soaked in violence. And, um, there are a lot of people that are studying that now, the relationship to violent messages and um, violent behavior. And at first, African-American music, at first African-American rap was uh, very much an agreeo style. It was a storytelling. So an individual was telling what he or she had done. But, of course, it evolved into that being the only type of lyric or the more, the more licentious lyrics prove to sell more. But I would say that there needs to be more, there needs to be more studying of the kind of music that people listen to um, and if it promotes violence in people who are prone to violence, who are at risk for violence. And I know you've been a, you've been a soldier, and I noticed that in the movies about Iraq and Afghanistan, that the um, a lot of the gunners and the tank listen to violent hardcore rock music when they're shooting. I noticed that in some of the films. So I wonder if it's you know we need to find out more about it, especially for African American men, because in these urban communities, being shot is normal going to jail is normal they have and i'm not saying it's normal from the outer society point of view i'm saying that the subgroup has normalized this because they're overrepresented in these events but when you look out to the larger population none of that is normal and so then another question when you do research study would be if we take white urban if we take white suburban teenagers who are not at risk for suicide and have them list because you got to get rid of the suicide part in this particular study and have them listen to these lyrics would they be inspired or influenced to commit these violent acts so it's hard to separate out the african-american people from this now because there's not a, there's not a whole lot of research and then if we know all of them are listening well we do know all of them are listening so how many of them who listen go out and commit the crime. I would even would like to know if someone, because this would be self-reported, if someone is listening to a violent song that includes shooting and killing people and the euphemisms as they are committing a crime, I think that would be a better data pool, a data set to get. So I, um, I urge I, people I to call thinking, in and um, leave a comment. 
I was just thinking, um, as we can ready to close out, though, um, the same example, because me and Kwabna has talked about that. You know, this is the soundtrack to Chicago or, you know, whatever area is played by violence. This is their soundtrack. And, you know, and, and you know, just like you talked about a tank gunner uh, playing violent, you know, hard rock music while he's engaged in acts of violence to get himself prepared psychologically into killing mode. I know that drive-by shooters are, are blasting whatever drill music, you know, as they're uh, in the commission of these acts. Well, I think you've, you've inspired a couple of shows, Scotty, and um, I'd love to talk to uh, your your um, your person uh, who does the Cure Violence in Chicago, no, he's not and with I think I'm going he, to... He's not with Cure Violence. He's with Clear the Airwaves. They work primarily to get these violent-type lyrics off the airwaves or, oh, the or airwaves. in the least, relegated to the hours between 10 p.m., and 7 a.m. as FCC guidelines dictate for obscene, you know, music and what have you. And certainly I think violence, you know, real graphic violence uh, um, falls under the category of the obscene. It, it certainly does. And many of the, the radio edits now, uh, they get, they really get, they're really skating the law. It, they're really skating the law when I listen to uh, R&B and hip-hop. And uh, the other thing about the uh, 10, 10 p.m. rule, I remember the rule from being on FCC-regulated radio, but the whole reason why people listen to um, satellite radio is that the FCC does not regulate it. Right, and internet. And, yeah, it's not, it doesn't have the same rules. So children can be exposed to things that they shouldn't be simply because the rule doesn't exist when you're driving in your car and you're listening to satellite radio, you can hear anything any time of the day. So um, those are really good suggestions for shows. I know we're out of time, and I want to thank Scotty for commentating. I want to thank him for engineering the show. Please visit the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Angel Fall, and thanks for listening to Victims to Victorious. 